Welcome back to this Tuesday's Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sunny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by the award-winning Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm great. I am happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and non-troversies, what's more on brand for Wiley e. Coyote, the animated nemesis of the Roadrunner, uh, than to come up with an elaborate plan to accomplish something only to have it fall apart disastrously at the last minute? In that sense, then, maybe uh, the movie Coyote versus Acme was always fated to wind up as a tax write-off, unseen and unloved by audiences, despite years of hard work on the part of actors, writers, directors, animators musicians, whatever, every, everyone worked hard on this movie. Nobody, maybe nobody will see it, but maybe they will. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, shortly after news broke that the SAG-AFTRA strike had come to an end, the mood in Hollywood darkened when Warner Brothers announced that Coyote versus Acme, a live-action animation hybrid akin to Who Framed Roger Rabbit, would join Batgirl as a tax write-down at Warner Brothers Discovery, never to be released. The reported uh, tax savings of $30 million or so, or earlier tax deductions, I'm not an accountant, I just know the numbers that I see out there, $30 million, uh, was judged to be bigger and a faster financial windfall than the costs associated with either releasing it in theaters or putting it on the streaming service Max. So WBD decided to shelve it following outrage from creatives online and discussions with talent behind the scenes. Puck's Matthew Bellany is reporting uh, that WB will allow the filmmakers to shop the picture to other studios for release. Though, you know, there's, there's something weirdly ironic about the idea of a Looney Tunes movie not being put out by Warner Brothers, whatever, neither here nor there. We may still see the movie yet as the point. Even if we don't, the whole episode lays bare a couple of clear truths. On the one hand, Warner Brothers looks like a complete an absolute disaster to work with and for. Uh, a company that has no sense of how to deal with actual creatives, no idea how to make money on their streaming properties, no, no idea what they're doing, right? Uh, here's a movie that was written and produced by James Gunn, who they've given the keys to the DC Comics kingdom. It stars John Cena, a guy who heads up one of their flagship shows, Peacemaker. And it features arguably one of their two or three biggest pieces of in-house intellectual property, the Looney Tunes universe. And they basically just threw it in the trash for a few dollars, or they were going to. What business are you even in if you are a movie studio and you cannot release a movie like this? I, I don't know. Nobody really seems to know. On the other hand, at a pure business level, it probably makes more sense to take the right down than put it on streaming. I'm Ron Burgundy. I mean, like, uh, is a Coyote versus Acme the sort of thing that's going to inspire a million signups for Max or stop a million people from leaving the service? I don't think so. For like, even for a single month, probably not. I like John Cena. I think he's an amusing actor. I think he's a he's a solid action star, but he's not an enormous star. I don't know that he's going to put butts in seats. And I remain slightly unconvinced that Looney Tunes is the IP goldmine that some folks think it is if the movie is merely okay it's likely to wind up in the content pile with everything else unwatched and unloved after an initial bump from being on the homepage of the app coyote versus acme is indicative of the whole problem with the modern business model for streaming particularly when it comes to movies outside of netflix which is a, a sui generous thing because it generates more cash than most small island nations streamers are faced with a situation where almost no individual thing really moves the needle right outside of flagship shows tv shows like House of the Dragon, or Only Murders in the Building, or the Yellowstone spinoffs, right? People tend not to sign up for services based on a new movie or even a new program. I remain convinced 
This problem is especially acute for films. WB's decision to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on two-hour movies like this for their streaming service was always insane. Never made any sense. Alyssa, what if... Uh, I'm just going to spitball here. What if studios had a, a business model that instead allowed people to pay for movies individually? You could even like host these movies in large communal settings, big screens and big speakers. And then the individual movie could generate revenue before winding up on the streaming services where it adds to the mass of hashtag content taking up digital space. Could such a thing possibly work? It could. And I would argue that actually... Um, post the success of Barbie would be the perfect time to release this specific Looney Tunes movie. Um, for people who are not familiar with the uh, humor writing of the New Yorker's Ian Fraser, Coyote v. Acme is actually an adaptation of one of my favorite pieces of Fraser's humor writing, which is literally the text of a lawsuit filed by Wiley e. Coyote against the Acme Corporation on the grounds that none of their products work as advertised. And it is exactly the kind of meta sort of character confronts the real world scenario that Barbie did unbelievably successfully. So they have, if not direct coattails, sort of a model for selling this type of story that's much more recent than Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Um, of all the times to do it, this is it, obviously. And it's just, it's a funny concept for a Looney Tunes movie, you know, it also could build on the success of the kind of mix of the Lego movie and that combination of sort of animation and live action collision between like a toy or a fictional character and the real world. And so I don't get the desire to just do nothing with this, especially because I feel like a lot of the coverage of this has framed the choice as binary, right? Like either you get to write off you know, this specific loss, or you don't get to write off any losses at all. And corporations can write off losses on their profits in any year. So if they put Coyote v. Acme in theaters and it made, you know, $60 million and then they ended up writing off $80 million because they doubled the budget on the marketing spend or something, they'd actually get to write off a larger loss. So the math of this does not entirely make sense to me. This is a good concept for a comedy movie. I really like John Cena. Um, I've talked on this podcast before about sort of the oddness of watching a generation of WWE stars have actually like broken out and become interesting actors in some ways. Um, and I would like for him to have more of these kind of opportunities. So yeah, I just, it's a bummer. I don't really get it. There's going to be this war of sort of arguments over, oh, the test screenings were really good. Maybe they weren't as good as the supporters say, but you know, if you're a giant corporation with a, you know, a big library of stuff like this to draw upon, Coyote v. Acme seems like the kind of swing that you should be taking at least some of the time. And I don't know. It's a bummer. I think part of the reasoning here, at least on uh, Warner Brothers Discovery's part, is that they are trying to save as much money as they possibly can quickly. Yeah. Like they are, they are, you know, they have this big, huge debt load that they're trying to pay down. There's a lot of math and accounting yeah. stuff I don't understand here, frankly, because I'm a movie guy, not a math and accounting guy. But my understanding is also together. movie, movie industry accounting is famously impossible to understand to the point where the top executives sort of get what they are doing. But there are so many sort of tricks and loopholes and, uh, you know, exemptions employed that anybody who actually tries to even gets who has even gets the full records and can just look at what's actually on the pages 
every time that's happened, the reporting on that stuff is like, this is crazy and no one can understand it. Yeah. And so I just while I while I get take Alyssa's point and it seems basically correct on its face, it's also not at all obvious to me that any of us have any clue exactly what the accounting math on this would look like one way or the other. And one thing we can presume anyway is that taking a loss without doing the release and doing the marketing spend is a much clearer case for them, right? They basically know up front how it's going to work out, which is that they're going to take this specific loss. It's only going to cost them this amount. They'll keep this amount of cash and that'll be that versus a huge amount of uncertainty that comes with, well, what if we release it, but uh, we have a much smaller marketing budget than usual? What if we release it, but we over promote it, right? More than we would normally in order to try and really sell this thing. What if we write like, there's just all these questions that come into play, different types of marketing, even have different types of write-offs and stuff associated with them. And it's just uh, like, I think part of the issue here is, as Sonny said, the speed of, of regaining the money. But I think part of it is this provides a kind of certainty, right? They Like they yeah. just, this is just a decision they can make right now that means they don't have to take a medium or to long-term risk on this project that clearly leadership does not believe in. But the other thing is, it's not just about this one movie and the cash associated with this one movie. The reporting indicates, at least, that they have plans for a Looney Tunes expanded universe to deep dive into this IP and make this a big cash cow. And maybe Sonny is right that that's uh, a bad idea and there's not as much money in Looney Tunes as they think, or maybe there's a ton of money. But what they're worried about is that this high concept kind of oddball project w that uh, there is at least a dispute about whether it test screened well. Uh, the, a bunch of the creatives say it did. Uh, there's some other reports saying, eh, maybe, maybe it didn't test screen so well. People were like kind of confused by it, which would not surprise me because people are often quite confused by high concept meta films and they, they tend not to test screen well, actually. Uh, but I don't know. Who, we, we don't know what the test screenings are like. No, no, there's, nobody's actually seen or shown off those reports. But if the, the suits don't believe in it, that's pretty clear. And they think that it, might, that it might not just cost them money, but also tarnish the brand that they are trying to build here. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's necessarily totally crazy because a product that doesn't work for viewers can leave a bad taste in the right, like that they that stays with the brand for a very long time here. I mean, I'm disappointed. I want to see this movie. I this looks very interesting to me. This is the kind of thing that does, in fact, particularly appeal to my weird sensibility. But sort of on the surface, as a business decision, it doesn't seem too too crazy. At the same time, like at the same time, it's just nuts that Warner Brothers now feels like it's in the business of releasing DC movies that are in a universe that has that they have canceled and also not releasing movies for money. Yeah. <laughs> like that's not what a movie studio does. Yeah. Movie studios make movies that like are designed to lead to people going to see more movies because they like the movies that are being made. That's what like you you make a movie, people like it, you make some money, you make more movies, you say from the people who brought you the movies that you liked. This is from the people who brought you no movies. Aquaman 2, which is part of a universe that you definitely don't need to care about anymore. Yeah. No, I mean, there's just, there's nothing ventured, nothing gained aspect here that I'm just, I don't know what else is in the theoretical Looney Tunes cinematic universe, but you know what? This sounds pretty good. 
right? As someone who, you know, has some memories of Looney Tunes, not incredibly passionate ones, but like, what are you going to do with Looney Tunes that's better than this? Where you can sell like, you know, Wiley Coyote, you have the highbrow angle that you can sell to critics. You have Cena, who has been, you know, I mean, I thought, for example, who was the best thing in the recent Fast and Furious movie, who's like, has this sort of strong independent brand who you have a relationship with, for God's sake. Like, what is the version of a Looney Tunes movie that's better than this on paper? I just, I don't get it. And so in a weird way, I think, you know, selling this to somebody else, my hope is that somebody buys this, puts some marketing money behind it and makes some money. And it's like, ha ha, to hell with you, Warner Brothers. And it's not just Cena either. The biggest thing that makes me think they are making a mistake is that on top of everything else, they will be irritating two people who they have ongoing relationships with in a big way, John Cena and uh, uh, James Gunn. But even more than that, if you after after the Batgirl fiasco, which it sounds like that wasn't a great movie. In some ways, I'm not like super upset that I don't have to watch that. But even still, after the Batgirl fiasco, after screwing over Christopher Nolan, or at least making him really mad to the point where he left the studio, Warner Brothers, for the longest time, was known as the director's studio, the place where the real artists who cared about cinema went to make their weird passion projects where they would have independence and creative control. And what is happening right now is that Warner Brothers is making clear that if you want that, if you are a creative who values being able to do something interesting and ambitious, you should definitely not under any circumstances make it at Warner Brothers. And so it's not just this like one set of this one pile of money. And even it's it's not just the two relationships that are central to the brand. It's a message to the rest, to anyone who does stuff in Hollywood and has ideas that make studios money. Oh, if you're going to do anything interesting or ambitious, don't do it here. Yeah, I mean, uh, like... It's interesting to look at from a pure IP play perspective, because on the one hand, you you look at these movies and they're like, well, you know, we're we've done this full shift to IP and you're shelving DC Comics movies and you're shelving Looney Tunes movies. But like those are actually the movies you probably should shelve if you if you legitimately don't believe in them, if you legitimately think they're like bad for the brand. The only reason these movies exist is to perpetuate those brands in a very real and specific way. So like I the artistic reasons for shelving it weirdly are the the reasons that I think are the best here because like I, if you don't believe in it and it's, you think it's bad then okay you don't hurt the rest of the brand I get it um, but at the same time like I just uh, like studios release bad movies it happens every like, year I, I, in I, September I and January we've seen a couple of them when did we when did we get so squeamish. At, at the studios just refused to release bad movies. I mean, could maybe it should have started years ago. I don't know. Maybe this is actually a course correction. This is the studio that released The Flash earlier this year, which I have seen a lot of movies this year. I have seen a bunch of movies that I did not like. None of them make me, in retrospect, more enraged than the fact that I sat through The Flash. What a piece of trash movie. I'm yeah. still, I'm so mad about it. I can think of one movie it was better than. All right. What's uh, that supposed to mean? Well, we'll get to that. Uh, (laughs) What do we think? Is it a controversy or a non-troversy that WB may or may not shelve this movie? And that will probably make them more money than not shelving it? I don't know. What do we we think here? Uh, Peter? It's a controversy, especially on top of the previous moves from Warner Brothers. Alyssa? It's controversial. It's clearly a controversy. I'm not sure that I 
sympathize entirely with some of the people who are like, well, if they do this, it should be put in the public domain because that's really not how like business stuff works. It's like that's you know what that is. That is film critics playing lawyer and accountant at the same time, which is just a always a great idea for, for everyone, everyone involved. Uh, but I, I mean, I don't know. I want to see this. I now I want to see. I want to see this, and I want to see Batgirl. They should do a, a canceled movies double feature at the Draft House. I'd, I'd sit through that. All right. Uh, make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus on Friday for our bonus episode on the end of the SAG after strike and some of the lingering questions about how AI will be used. Uh, what did the studios give up? What did the actors gain? And why aren't some of the actors happy with the deal? We'll, we'll take a look at the future of AI infused entertainment and what that will look like. And now on to the main event, the Marvels. Marvels, guys. Brie Larson returns to the role of Captain Marvel in the sequel to the $1.1 billion grossing 2019 hit film. Larson is joined by uh, Iman Villani, who plays Kamala Khan, uh, a.k.a. Miss Marvel, from the Disney Plus show of the same name, and Teona Paris, who plays Monica Rambo, a.k.a. Captain Rambo, the character we all know and love and definitely remember gained superpowers at the end of WandaVision. The three superheroes all have light-based abilities captain marvel is basically superman but like she shoots light beams out of her fingers instead of her eyes um miss marvel can turn light into solid matter and captain rambo can do lots of things absorb light and also shoot lasers and then make herself intangible and also fly uh lots of just lots of stuff don't ask questions just just accept it these powers such as they are all, all become entangled because a magical thing activated by Dar Ben, played by Zawe Ashton, is interacting with holes being punched into the intergalactic space transit system used by Marvel's spacefaring heroes and villains. Uh, Dar Ben is a Kree warrior. Remember the Kree? Uh, she wants to restore her home world's environment to health because it's been ravaged by civil war after the destruction of the Supreme Intelligence. Remember those things? Uh, the air is dirty. The oceans have gone dry. The sun is cold, so she wants to use the space transit hole-punching thingy to bring new atmosphere and new oceans and a new sun to the planet. The marbles, naturally, uh, have to stop her from doing this. That's the long and the short of the plot. You don't really need to care about it that much because the movie doesn't really care about it that much. The 33rd entry in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is a placeholder of sorts. It has strong Iron Man 2 or Thor 2 vibes to it, insofar as the director and the writers are mostly trying to use this movie as a way to further other plot points in the MCU to tie in the Disney Plus stuff to the Marvel Cinematic Universe stuff to convince us to watch Mrs. Miss Ma Marvel and WandaVision. And, you know, a lot of synergy happening here. It's a lot of synergy storytelling bit of a mess lots of synergy though at the very least even if it's a mess the good news is the action is weightless and the stakes are meaningless so it, but we're winning all around here uh one thing this movie definitively demonstrates i will go to my grave arguing this marvel needs to stop trying to make the kree happen nobody cared about the kree of the comics nobody cares about the kree in the movies i say this as a longtime comics nerd the kree were always boring and dumb stop it Another thing this movie rather definitively demonstrates, uh, Marvel's vaunted quality control process has hit a bit of a rough patch. Uh, there are long stretches in this film involving Nick Fury, who you notice I didn't mention before, that take place at a space station. I had no idea what was going on in, the, in that space station. I didn't even really remember that there was a space station. I forget where that first came up, maybe in the... the secret invasion storyline but they don't really spend any i don't know it doesn't matter just as a matter of getting us from plot point a to plot point b or introducing us to character 
A and character. There's a character in this movie. I, sorry, I'm going off script here for a moment. There's a character in this movie who at one point says, I'm 300 years old. And I was just like, what? I thought it was 304 years old, but yeah, whatever. I was like, in, a, co- I was in like, a conversation, I think about planning for retirement. I just, yeah, no, I, I was like, I was like, uh, you're how? How are you 300? Who are you? How have we? If you're 300 years old, how have I never seen you before? Anyway, doesn't really matter. Um, I will. I'll say one good thing about this picture, uh, Kamala Khan. Delightful, doing the whole fangirling thing over Captain Marvel. And I liked Larson much more this time around than I did in the first movie. In the first movie, she was so stiff. She was just, she was such a stiff. And I think she's loosened up a bit here, and it's much to her benefit. There's decent rapport between all three of the leads, but it's really just not enough to save the Marvels, which is uh, lensed by Nia DaCosta like a TV show. It's all like one shots and two shots and medium close up. And I saw Candyman in theaters. She knows how to use widescreen. She knows how to like tell story from distance and like show broad scapes. There's a couple of great sequences in that movie that are just like slow push-ins from a distance that show both like the community that you live in and also the isolation of living in a city that it was really interesting and well done. Whatever she's trying to do here doesn't work. Like it's very clearly director for higher stuff and uh, there was not much thought or interest put into anything that was happening in it. I don't know. It's a bad movie. Uh, it's the latest in a series of bad movies from Marvel, like Eternals and Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. It is underperforming at the box office. It's getting hammered by critics. Uh, perhaps most worryingly for Marvel, it's getting savaged by the fans. All three of these pictures got Bs from CinemaScore audiences, which is the equivalent of getting like a D- minus on the comic book grading curve. Peter, one of the things, get meta here for a moment, because one of the things we try and balance on this show is the desire to talk about things people are actually watching and also movies that are interesting, right? So as much like as much as people say they want to listen to podcasts about smaller indie movies, I can assure you that the numbers do not back up that sentiment. And it's why we're talking about this movie today instead of say The Holdovers, which came out this week. Maybe we'll get to that eventually, but you know, we we tend to prioritize the big things because that's what people go see and then want to talk about. But I do kind of wonder if we are getting to the point in the genre cycle for comic books where we can more or less just kind of start ignoring these things more often than we don't. Well, I don't know. I mean, one answer to that question, Sonny, uh, very specifically, is we're go- we're not going to have to ignore Marvel next year because there is only one Marvel movie coming out in theaters, and that's Deadpool 3, which is, yes, technically a, a, an MCU film now that Fox is part of Disney and Deadpool and all the, the X-Men characters have been brought into the Marvel Universe, but it's in some ways only barely an MCU movie. So, Alyssa... You are going to get your wish. We are going to go at least 14 months here, I think, without watching another normal mainline MCU film. We will have to watch Ryan Reynolds and Hugh Jackman mess with each other for about two hours next summer. But I think this is an instructive movie for us to watch for a bunch of reasons. And we'll defend this decision while also explaining what I think of the movie. This movie wildly underperformed. It is the first movie in Marvel's history to gross less than $50 million on its opening weekend. Uh, it's just first total- MCU movie, for the record. Excuse first me, MCU Marvel movie. Cinematic yes, I'm sorry. First MCU film going all the way back to Iron Man. And so I believe that's not even adjusted for inflation, which just means that this movie was, was just, by Marvel standards, a bomb. But Marvel's standards are that we expect these movies to be massive cultural juggernauts. And a $47 million or $45 million dollar opening weekend is still a pretty big opening weekend, especially post-pandemic. And and what that tells you is there still is a core of fans out there who are going to see it, who care about this sort of thing. 
And it's just been the, the MCU footprint has been reduced from being the absolute biggest thing in Hollywood and in the movies to being something a little more modest. And in frankly, like this is these are the kind of numbers that, yes, this is really particularly bad but the numbers that marvel has put out this year especially if you look at guardians of the galaxy 3 which made 880 million or something like that um uh, all told the numbers that marvel has put out this year are manageable if you don't spend two or three hundred million dollars on your movies and then another couple hundred million dollars on marketing if you bring down some of the budgets and so one of the things that i was actually a little bit heartened by uh, was when Variety did that report on the disastrous state of the Marvel Universe and sort of how things are going badly, they said that part of their process of rebooting the long-in-the-works, hilariously misconceived Blade film was that they're scrapping all the stuff that they've done, including the premise about how it was three women learning life lessons in the movie it was supposed to be about the guy killing vampires with a sword. And instead, they're going to make a smaller film for a, not a not a tiny budget but for less than 100 million dollars which they've never done before and that seems like okay it's not just that that's good in terms of this makes the costs more manageable it's that limits uh, on budget limits can actually spur creativity and some of my favorite genre films over the years are actually relatively small budget movies that have that have taken smaller budgets and used them to try and do something interesting. I mean, a canonical example from the last couple of decades is something like Pitch Black. But even a movie like Arrival, I don't think, it certainly didn't cost $100 million. My recollection is that it cost about 50 or $60 million. Uh, uh, it might be a little bit more than that. And that's the sort of thing that Marvel could be trying to do. And in fact, there was a report about, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago when Marvel was launching. This was, um, maybe it was eight years ago. So anyway, a, a, a number of years ago, uh, uh, when Mar Marvel was ramping up and trying to figure out how to expand their brand, that they were trying to do something under what was called a Marvel Knights imprint. And at that point, it was they were looking for feature films that they could do for maybe 20 or $40 million, often darker stuff like Moon Knight. I think a lot of those ideas got transformed into their TV business. Uh, but this is, I think this is going to be an actual lesson for Marvel. It's pretty clear that they are not going to continue as they have been, not just because this movie didn't work, not just because Ant-Man Quantumania didn't work, also because uh, of the, all the issues with um, uh, Jonathan Majors and Kang and the, the plans there. This is a lesson and Marvel is going to is going to shift gears here. And I think they are going to try different things. And because the, this this is audience is saying you can no longer assume that Basically, everybody who goes to see blockbuster movies will see anything you put in theaters. And that's, I think, going to be that's that's going to be better for Marvel. It's going to be better for moviegoers. It's going to be better for comic book fans. This is not a very good movie, and I think it's a bad movie for a bunch of reasons. But namely, it demonstrates the folly of the Flood the Zone TV project, because uh, the movie's bad for all the reasons you said, Sonny. But the, those all of these TV shows they did two things. One is they gummed up the continuity with with homework. And this movie is homework. The director, Nia DaCosta, like has, there's a quote that she gave that this movie is a sequel to five different things, three of which are TV series. So that's like 18 hours of stuff you got to watch in addition to all 32 previous MCU films. And, you know, it'd be like, this is, it's just, it's too much. Nobody can keep track of it, even if it's your job. So it's the, the sort of the continuity mess, but it's also that because it's a sequel to a bunch of things that started on television, 
it feels like a very special episode of television. It just has big season finale of a kind of goofy teen show, like teen comic book show vibes. And, you know, if it were a TV season finale, I'd be like, that was that was okay. That's fine, but it's not. It's a $200 million movie, and Marvel needs to figure out how to make them better. Well, Alyssa, this gets to kind of a thing that we have talked about before on this show, which is that, you know, part of the part of the reason that the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe has been so successful is because it has felt like a series of TV shows, kind of. It's basically been like a season finale every three months, and that's it like for for the last 15 years and like that's an extremely that has been an extremely lucrative and extremely artistically successful model for them and then when you start throwing actual tv shows into the mix it really bollockses everything up yeah no it's look i you know i used to be a full-time critic now i write a column and have two kids and you know do this podcast and there is only so much stuff I can keep up with, right? And so I had not actually watched Ms. Marvel before this. And, you know, I thought Iman Vellani was charming enough in this. Like she and her family unit are far and away the best, most engaging thing in the Marvels that I actually went back and watched a couple episodes of Ms. Marvel. And it's fun. It's cute. But like, I am exhausted, right? I am, you know, because of this podcast, because I care about movies, I see vastly more stuff than the average human, you know, certainly the average like normie mom in her late thirties, but there are only so many hours in the day. And without the professional obligation to watch a hundred percent of it, I cannot keep up with this stuff anymore. I just can't do it. It's just too much. Even I, who I don't have kids and I watch like just everything. I have not seen one single episode of Secret Invasion or Miss Marvel. I did see WandaVision, which sets up the Tayana Paris, uh, you know, Commander Rambo, Captain Rambo yeah. character here. Captain so I, I, I remembered that stuff. But I, I was... I was lost in part because the movie is very bad at storytelling and just it, it even with the fact that the first... 15 or 20 minutes are basically just exposition reminding you of stuff. It's almost like a recap, like previously on some Marvel things. And it just like walks you through a bunch of this stuff. Uh, but even with that, like I, what is going like you said what is the, there's a spaceship and something about the Cree planet. I remember the supreme intelligence part for sure. I that was a big deal. That at all, to but be honest. I don't know, it made me angry. Yeah. And look, I think <laughs> I think that there were a couple of things about this movie that made that sort of crystallized for me how irritated I feel about what seems to be Marvel's kind of contempt for its own product. So the thing that Marvel has done in both making the universe much bigger, right? Like bringing in all of these alien species, etc., and doing that at the same time that they're doing the multiverse stuff, which I just am left totally cold by, is that it's introduced the possibility of a lot more sort of worlds and species and conflicts. And yet Marvel seems to care nothing about them at all. You know, one of the things that I thought worked really well in the Guardians of the Galaxy movie was setting up the idea of the Ravagers as this sort of you know, piratical culture and carrying it all the way through and developing some of those characters over multiple movies. What you see here in Ms. Marvel is this weird, almost touristic approach to the worlds that the characters visit. You know, I the whole thing with the 
singing planet where Ms. Marvel, where Captain Marvel's like has this marriage of convenience that clearly is a way for them to like shoehorn in a Korean star who they like kind of want to do something with. Like it's terrible. <laughs> it's really terrible. It looks terrible. It feels like some weird like National Geographic. Oh, we've stumbled upon a strange culture. Let us visit mo- it momentarily and never think about it again. You know, the Korean, the like the Korean scroll. They're scrolls. That's what they are. Um, like, there's an actual scrolls are a big deal in the comics. I I remember this vaguely, but yeah. again, like I, I have two small children in a life. Um, I I'm up against my limits of remembering wow. all of this stuff. Um, I don't have shape- either of those. They're shapeshifters. Yeah. They can like the scroll. Just, like, the scrolls are the, the shapeshifters. And the Kree are just like other and, people who don't like them. And the Kree are basically trying to wipe out the scrolls for reasons that have never really. The, one of the signal problems of the original Captain Marvel is they decided to subvert expectations by having the scrolls be like uh, oppressed victims of the Kree. Okay. And sure. like they should be, they should just be villains because you know what's mm-hmm. villainous is a shapeshifter who comes to your planet and tries to steal it. That's villainous. Yeah. But so like. It's very weird to see this movie that takes this sort of purportedly existential conflict between two separate species, one of whom is like stealing the other's resources and turning them into refugees and murder them, murdering them. And it's very weird to have this movie land with a movie with that theme land in the middle of everything that's going on in Israel and Gaza right now and have it be so utterly featherweight, right? Like it's like, oh, yeah, we're going to destroy some planets because also our sun is dying. But, like, this is all plot that will be resolved in 15 minutes and we'll never see it again, right? And I'm absolutely not saying that this movie is commentary on October 7th or anything that happened after it. It is very obviously not. But the juxtaposition of, like, you know, resource wars, who gets to live on the planet, these people are refugees with real-world conflict, just makes the lazy sort of totally disposable storytelling the it just makes the terribleness of it stand out in exceptionally sharp relief right like they're Th- just this was a problem with thor 4 too even yeah. totally independent of the news context of it right of the, the political yeah. global events context thor 4 was a movie about like some real deep uh, kind of society and individual level horrors mm-hmm. and it treated all of them as glib silly jokes and it's just there's a real, like, there's a real ugly attitude towards all this. It's just, you know, I, again, like, it's comics, it's lightweight, but it all just feels really instrumental. And, you know, I don't want to ascribe too much meaning to this, but I, I'm starting to feel just sort of uncomfortable with that approach. It's not fun. Well, it let feels me, let really me... often adolescent and – yeah. I want to drill down on this for a second because yeah. I, I do think there's like, so there's a moment in the film where she goes to this awful singing planet, which is literally the worst thing. It's like, I, I the way I described it in my review is like, it's like going into the hell universe from Event Horizon. For me, my personal hell universe is that awful singing planet. Um, and and uh, she goes there where she is literal royalty. She's like literally married to the ruler of this planet. She's the princess of it. And uh, they go there and it seems to be destroyed. 
by the Kree. They open up the the like water sucking thing and it steals their oceans. And if it's like what we saw happen on the first planet, it's just going to completely destroy that world. Like like people won't be able to. And then it's just not mentioned again. Now somebody somebody said, told me on Twitter like no no there's actually a line at the end of the film where they're like and everybody was okay. But like that's not how it plays in the context no. of the film at all. In the context of the film, it's like they destroy this planet and then they run away and it's just gone and like never mentioned again. And as you say, Alyssa, it's it's like weirdly callous and lightweight and not serious. And like not, I, these movies don't have to be like the DC self-serious, you know, like murder versus whatever. Like they they, they can do a different thing. But like, I, I can't help but think of this. It's going to get very nerdy here for a second. But in, wow. in the I had to expect it even even nerdier than it's been in in the original Marvel comics. There's a very famous storyline called the Dark Phoenix storyline. Short version is Dark Phoenix, evil character, a good character who becomes evil. She kills a whole planet full of people, and the writers were gonna like resolve this by just having her lose her powers. And they were gonna they were gonna like depower her, and then she was gonna be okay. And the editor of the books at the time was like, "She just killed six billion people. You can't just have her go back to being okay." So they they had to kill the character. They literally punished her by death. They like killed they killed the character. And like, there's nobody at Marvel right now who is looking at these movies and being like, "You you guys are destroying. You're killing." hundreds of thousands of like lots and lots of people are dying planets are being destroyed there has to be some consequences other than the Kree get their sun back the Kree get their the Kree get their sun started and and their oceans are back and their uh air is fixed and like they don't suffer any consequences i think that's bad storytelling it's bad storytelling it's very bad and i think part of the problem is that they overlearned the lessons of taika waititi joss whedon and the dc universe because what they took from the dc universe was that it was way too grim and you know there was famously that rule uh like when Zack snyder was doing justice league that there could be no jokes right and marvel was like well we've got the jokes but they also want right and taika waititi did well and joss whedon was very quippy and all of this brought all of that sort of sense of fun and humor but they also want a sense of real stakes and and just big picture epic visuals, which means planets, cities, large things that are inhabited and populated have to blow up. Well, you can't have you can't have everything be light, no stakes, and also constantly be blowing up whole civilizations. There's a lot of stakes there. And part of what's so irksome about this approach is that you know, the franchise as a whole has handled sort of the trauma of the blip when Thanos kills half of all existence in a fairly good sort of extended way, right? I mean, that's probably the most emotionally impactful scene in this movie is when Monica Rambeau wakes up in the hospital, like she's returned when the blip is reversed and she finds out her mother has just died, right? And it's like she loses that time. It's the, you know, Tiana Paris is a good actress. I love her. I want better for her. And I've liked her a lot for a very long time. And, you know, so Marvel can do this. And so the fact that they're choosing not to repeatedly, this is why people thought that comic books were a lesser art form for a long time, right? I mean, this is like the wrap on comic books is that they're fundamentally adolescent and weightless. And, you know, the creativity is just kind of like dashed off trash. And that's what these movies feel like. It is so artistically frustrating. And I know I've talked about this over and over again to see a generation of talented actors and directors get tied up in turning out this dreck 
right? It's just, there is a generation of art that we have missed because of this. And, you know, look, maybe some of it wouldn't get made. Maybe, you know, I don't know that Nia DaCosta is going to make two movies in the time that it takes to make this, or that, you know, Daniel Destin Cretton is going to make, you know, a couple movies in the time that he would spend making Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings or, you know, whatever Kang project he's theoretically attached to. But God, I just miss some of these movies, right? I mean, I I remember seeing Brie Larson in Short Term 12 and just feeling like she was a goddamn revelation. I remember seeing Tiana Paris in Survivor's Remorse and um and Chirac and just thinking, oh my God, she is funny and brassy and, you know, tender and great. And this is what we get, right? Like, this is what we're stuck with. And I am so frustrated by that. It just feels like a goddamn tragedy to me. Uh, So what do we think? Do we like this movie? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Peter? Well, it's not a Marvel. Not even one Marvel, much less multiple Marvels. I didn't like it. Alyssa? Uh, I, I mean, actually, for all I've said, no. Thumbs down. God, obviously. Yeah. Uh, thumbs down. It's not a good movie. A, no more. No more of these. All right, that is it for today's show. Many thanks for our audio engineer, Jonathan Siri, without whom this program would sound much worse. Be sure to head over to Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on Friday. Tell your friends. Strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. Don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love today's episode, or if you want to complain to me because I've messed up the history of the Dark Phoenix, which is entirely... Somebody's going to yell at me about that. I know it. Please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next Friday.